Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. We start this episode off with our monthly roundup of prison disturbances compiled by Perilous Chronicle. Here are a few recent events that Perilous has tracked. In the morning of September 3rd, there was a reported disturbance within a pod at Alvin Glenn Detention Center in Columbia, South Carolina. According to the sheriff, a prisoner jimmied a lock and let other prisoners out, and guards were attacked. The sheriff claims the cause of disturbance was because two prisoners were upset about the lack of recreation time. Two guards were hospitalized with no life-threatening injuries, and 12 prisoners have been charged with the attack. The sheriff also claimed that no force was used in response. On September 7th, a disturbance was reported at Baxter County Detention Center in Mountain Home, Arkansas. Allegedly, the disturbance started because a prisoner complained about being given funky-tasting vegetables. Other prisoners in two pods joined in the complaint and started throwing water under the doors of their cells. Both pods were flooded during the event, and the water supply was shut off. According to KTLO, a less-than-lethal shotgun was used during the disturbance by a deputy, and prisoners were handcuffed. No injuries were reported. On Monday, September 13th, a hunger strike began at Glades County Detention Center in Moorhaven, Florida a facility that is under federal contract with ICE to detain immigrants. About 100 are participating in the hunger strike. According to Mike Ludwig of Truthout, the strike is in regards to long-standing human rights abuses at the facility, such as medical neglect during COVID-19, and several members of Congress have, quote, called on federal officials to halt transfers to the jail and shut it down. Freedom for Immigrants, A civil rights group has more recently reported on September 20th that, according to newly obtained records, quote, officials at a federal immigration detention center in Glades County, Florida, routinely use toxic chemicals at highly dangerous levels, exposing immigrants held at the facility to severe health effects, including damage to reproductive health. Freedom for Immigrants has also publicized the demands of the hunger strikers. Immediate release, no deportations, adequate medical and mental health care, COVID-19 precautions, including masks and PPE, food, hot water, sanitary conditions, and access to phones. The group says that ICE is currently threatening to deport many of the strikers to Haiti, despite the fact that many, quote, organizers have no family or connections to Haiti and have demanded the halting of deportations. The hunger strike is currently ongoing. On September 4th, Detainees being held in Division 10 of Cook County Jail in Chicago started a hunger strike to call for protections from COVID-19. According to several groups organizing demos outside of the jail in support of the hunger strikers, those inside have demanded, quote, increased access to the COVID-19 vaccine, PPE, sanitizer, testing, and appropriate medical treatment and quarantine for everyone who has tested positive for the virus, unquote. It's also been alleged that one of the hunger strikers, Thaddeus Goods, was found unconscious in his cell after a guard attack that required hospitalization. The strike ended on September 17th due to health concerns. 
On September 16th, a disturbance was reported at Southeastern Ohio Regional Jail in Nelsonville, Ohio. Significant damage was reported, including, quote, sprinkler heads, windows, sinks, fire probes, and more, unquote. Officials claim that a special response team was called in to negotiate with prisoners, but allegedly they could not talk to them. Tear gas and flashbangs were deployed, and officials reported no injuries. The cause of the disturbance is unknown. On September 17th, a disturbance occurred at Union County Jail in New Albany, Mississippi, when the sheriff reported that prisoners were, quote, agitated and defiant, end quote. Deputies and the New Albany Police Department responded to the disturbance, and the sheriff allegedly claimed that the prisoners backed down. The fire department was also called to assist in clearing pepper spray from the area if necessary, but the sheriff claims that no pepper spray was used and no injuries were reported. The cause of the disturbance is unknown, but the sheriff mentioned that a county employee was dismissed the day prior to the disturbance. On September 17th, two state prisoners escaped from a, quote, community service project in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. They allegedly took a car and, quote, drove off. They were both recaptured in Rapid City, South Dakota. On September 19, four detainees escaped from Pearl River County Jail in Poplarville, Mississippi. The Sheriff's Department reported that at 1 a.m. on Sunday the 19th, the prisoners, quote, used a small access point in a wall to get into a maintenance corridor, then climbed a piece of HVAC equipment, and then used a sheet to shimmy down the wall of the facility. End quote. All four prisoners were recaptured. On September 20th, migrants from Haiti who were captured in federal custody from the International Bridge in Del Rio, Texas, seized control over several buses in transport to San Antonio, Texas. According to the Washington Examiner, those in custody overpowered the drivers and drove the buses down the road a little ways and escaped. Others kicked out windows and escaped. According to senior federal law enforcement officials from ICE, those who escaped have been captured. According to Perilous Chronicles' Ridley Seawood, on September 20th, 10 prisoners at the Minnesota Sex Offenders Program facility in Moose Lake sat in a circle and refused to return to their unit when staff ordered detainees off the yard. Quote, we haven't seen a star in 10 years, said Peter, who reported the incident to Perilous. Detainees negotiated with guards for two hours before agreeing to exit the yard back to their units. A Minnesota Department of Human Services spokesperson confirmed that the detainees refused to leave the yard, but said that after a few minutes of expressing their concerns to staff, the clients complied without incident when ordered to return to their units. Minnesota is only one of 20 states in the U.S. with a civil commitment program. Minnesota's civil commitment program is the largest of its kind and is enveloped in controversies ranging from racial discrimination to discrimination against LGBTQ detainees to criminal behavior by staff. However, the primary contention with the program is that for many of the people committed here, it's a death sentence. For more information about the protest and testimonies of those who have participated in the sit-in and last month's hunger strike, visit Perilous's website. On September 23rd, two prisoners escaped from Nova Scotia Correctional Facility in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, Canada. The prisoners escaped around 9 p.m. on the 23rd, and as of September 28th, have yet to be recaptured. 
On September 23rd, several organizations reported a hunger strike involving more than 300 prisoners at the adult correctional institutions in Cranston, Rhode Island. According to protesters who drove outside the facilities on September 24th, prisoners were protesting the lockdown imposed, quote, for the purpose of a four-day correctional officer celebration that included tours of prison facilities for families, end quote. Russell Jones, a member of the Direct Action for Rights and Equality Behind the Walls Committee, quoted in an Uprise Rhode Island article, stated that, quote, this is in line with the huge history of treating black people like animals on display in a zoo, end quote. The lockdown has restricted access to things such as showers, phones, video calls, and outdoor time. The protests outside were meant to deter the tours, but the Rhode Island Brotherhood of Correctional Officers, quote, revised their agenda and canceled them, end quote. Prison officials have denied there was a hunger strike, but the Department of Corrections spokesperson, J.R. Ventura, said that prisoners are, quote, not being brought food, but consuming food they have saved, end quote, meaning they are refusing meals from the prison and eating off the commissary. Dare has countered these claims, stating that they have been in direct contact with people inside who have verified the hunger strike. On September 27th, five prisoners escaped from Avoyel's Parish Sheriff's Office, Marksville DC-1 jail facility in Marksville, Louisiana. According to a report by the Sheriff's Office, the prisoners repeatedly exerted weight on a sink in the dorm that led to it collapsing and the wall behind it being exposed. The prisoners then entered through the wall and accessed an exterior pipe chase, damaged and opened an exterior door wall, and exited the jail through a hole in a perimeter fence. As of September 29th, none of the prisoners have been recaptured. Two women also escaped this facility in early July, but were quickly recaptured. In 2008, Monroe County moved to build a new expanded jail framed as a justice campus using humanitarian rhetoric. In response, a diverse group of local residents founded an organization called Decarcerate Monroe County, DMC. Judah Schept, who returns as our guest alongside Nicole Siegel, was an organizer in the successful DMC campaign to block jail expansion here, as well as a profound critic of what his book terms progressive punishment in which humanist rationales are used to justify state violence and the expansion of caging. This discourse has reappeared locally, with Monroe County's renewed drive to build new jail facilities on alleged human rights grounds. It is also a strategic feature of many prison and policing projects across the country right now in the wake of last year's George Floyd uprising. This week, they continue to discuss the proposed jail expansion and the pros and cons of common alternatives to incarceration. They compare the jail expansion they fought 12 years ago to the jail expansion Monroe County now has on the table. They discuss various intercepts, moments that are supposed to come in between a person and their incarceration. Shept mentions what he sees as a better option, that a state that, quote, takes care of its own is itself an alternative to incarceration, that funding programs which help people well in advance of the many issues that lead them to prisoner jail would make a big impact on the community. Here they are. Judah, will you do the math for us? What if Bloomington created a truly excellent mental health care facility in town, which was available to people regardless of ability to pay, 
which was non-carceral. You could go there without fear that if you were involved in a drug that was illicit, that was illegal, you would not be funneled into law enforcement, uh, that you wouldn't lose your children if you admitted to a, an addiction issue as a parent. What, what if there were really an excellent mental health facility in town? How many people would be in the jail? I mean, <laughs> I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I can tell you what I know about jail populations just generally. About 65% of people in a given jail are there pre-trial almost all of whom are simply too poor to afford bail. We know from the report that the county is using to justify building new right now that 75 to 80% of the people in there, if they're not there on a charge related to drug abuse or mental illness, they're there at least in part because those are issues that are of primacy for them. So I don't know, take 20% of the current jail population. I think that's maybe a starting figure. Although I would also suggest that there are plenty of people within that 20%, let's say, for whom jail is also not the right place. So I think the kind of facility you're talking about, which based on my six years in Bloomington, is actually the kind of facility that would honestly express the sort of exceptional community that people in Monroe County imagine it to be, a facility that actually takes care of its own, that is for the public, that does focus on the social good, and the social wage, that's the kind of facility that I think services the community far better than a jail current or future. I'm looking at the irony of the numbers, and because you did just give us numbers, you said in the ICS report that they calculate that 75 to 80% of the 320 people there have some form of mental illness or substance abuse disorder. So the answer is if 20% of the people remain, that's 64 people. That's under the proposal that the 1978 study projected. What's fascinating is that that number is precisely the upper end of the continuum that that consultant in 1977 had suggested. That's exactly right. That's what they suggested we would need. The upper end. And you're yeah. even pointing out that there are people within that number who would not need to be incarcerated if we looked at the question from other perspectives. That's right. I'm, I'm really opposed to, there's this set of terms that scholars of the carceral state use, which is the non-non-nons, the non-violent, non-sexual, non-serious. Non-violent, non-sexual, non-serious, that these tend to be the, the first sets of offenses that the sort of existing so-called bipartisan consensus in some states around prison reform can agree on should be eligible for sentence reductions and things like that. And I, I get that that is maybe the easiest ground on which to come to some kind of agreement. And I think in the current context, what's standing in for those non-non-nons is that 75 to 80% figure. And I think, it, of course, it makes sense to start there. I am unwilling to throw the other 20% or the not the the non 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 nons under the bus. I think we incarcerate people convicted of violent offenses for far too long in this country, and of course, the very concept of violence itself is really complicated and ensnares lots of people who don't pose any kind of threat to public safety. And of course, ignores all kinds of other violences that exist in the United States. Maybe it's a really good place to start the seventy-five to eighty percent of people, but I'm also really hesitant to say a jail for everybody else is acceptable. Right. And just on the question of the non-non-nons, it's worth pointing out also that the category of sex offender is an enormous category, which people assume is full of 
violent rapists or you know just the, the worst possible scenario but in fact includes people who are ensnared for all kinds of reasons including queerness or mental health issues public exposure urination you know things that happen to people in the course of of other you know untoward circumstances like getting drunk after a party and peeing in a corner on your way home and then having that added to some having that used as an enhancement for some other charge to make sure you do jail time or to force some kind of guilty plea for some other charge. So it's worth bringing skepticism also to the question of sex offenses when considering whether incarceration is obvious for everybody with conviction like that on their record. Absolutely true. So important to name. What else do you see in this proposal on the table right now for a new jail in Monroe County that reminds you of the proposal in 2008? And what else do you see that is new? One element of it that you and I were talking about just before we got on air that I think is both reminiscent and new are the concepts. This is in, I'm not sure which report, I don't have it just up in front of me, but the concepts of these intercepts. So built into the proposal from one of the consultants is the very notion of sort of diversion right, right. Of, of developing so-called alternatives, which is very reminiscent of elements of the proposal that we encountered in DMC 12 years ago, as people talked lots and lots about the importance of alternatives to incarceration and prosecutorial diversion programs and things like that. I think one element to this, of course, I wouldn't speak out against alternatives to incarceration, of course, need those kinds of programs. But one element that was always foundational to the justice campus and which appears to be foundational within these series of intercepts is the idea that they are inherently connected to the existing or perhaps expanding carceral system. They, in fact, expand it, right? They make it into a sort of more capacious system. The alternatives wind up ensnaring more people. Often accompanying these kinds of alternatives are all kinds of demands or contingencies that could actually lead somebody back into being incarcerated. And so in some ways, it's, it brings me back to the conversation about scales of the state and community and what sort of state we want. If you can think about Monroe County, again, as sort of the scale of the state over which your listening audience actually has a fair amount of of um, say or control, right? You, you know, you can actually create a fair amount of change at the level of your county. And so to me, it raises the question of, um, it's not that we don't want alternatives to incarceration, of course we do, but it also, I think, suggests that we have to sort of really interrogate what an alternative to incarceration is. I yeah. think having all kinds of services available to people long before they might get arrested and certainly after they get arrested, let me make that very clear, but also completely unrelated to the criminal justice apparatus, to me, is an alternative to incarceration, funding the food banks and expanding them, and funding the shelters and expanding them, and decreasing the barriers at the shelters, and decriminalizing homelessness, decriminalizing substance possession and abuse. Those are all alternatives to incarceration, essentially building up at the scale of the county, the kind of state I think most people in Monroe County would actually like to see, a state that takes care of its own. That itself is an alternative to incarceration. So I think 
that element of the report is both Im important in the sense that we need to pay attention to what kinds of, you know, writ more narrowly, what kinds of alternatives to incarceration are being proposed and evaluate those maybe on their own terms. But I think it's also really important to name that an alternative to incarceration does not, and in fact, maybe, you know, should be really understood first as, you know, much more literally, like something that is outside of the existing carceral system and which in fact can you know be be funded in lieu of funding a jail yeah let me let me read the part of the article in the b square beacon that summarizes the proposal from this consulting group inclusivity strategic consulting because it's so it just it's painfully apparent what you're saying the report described intercept points for reducing the number of people who are jailed. And here are these intercept points. There are five of them, but they, there are six because well, the first one is intercept zero. Intercept zero consists of community services and crisis services that are deployed to prevent someone from ever brushing up against law enforcement. So perhaps some of these community services are uh, some of the things that you're talking about, Judah, but it seems to me that what this consultant is really envisioning are services that are deployed after the commission of a quote unquote crime, right? That it is, it is something that some kind of crisis service could come into play after somebody has supposedly done something that offends the public and that could be charged therefore as a crime. But, and that's intercept zero. It doesn't even get to be counted somehow. And then here's the paragraph with the, the next five. Intercept one is the diversion by law enforcement to treatment services without arrest or charge. So, but that is law enforcement assisted diversion or lead as people say. It is not community assisted diversion it's already a contact with law enforcement. So it's That's within right. the existing carceral system. Intercept two is initial detention and initial court hearings, which allows diversion, which allow diversion to community-based treatment. But that is also within the criminal justice system and already within the court. So the person's already developing a record and there are carceral consequences. Intercept three is the jail and court process that could allow diversion to community-based something. The noun is missing there. So, but could, points, I think, even more strongly to the fact that people are already in a punitive carceral system by the time they get even to the possibility of what is supposedly an intercept. They haven't been intercepted. They've been integrated into the carceral system. Intercept four is re-entry into the community after jail. Oh, I think we've forgotten that that means people went to jail, linking people in jail to treatment services. That's the logic of the justice campus, right? Quote, unquote, justice campus, that when people are in jail, when they are detained, they can get access to services, but only then. And Intercept 5 is community corrections, specialized community-based criminal justice supervision with added supports for, <laughs> for people with mental illness. So community corrections, there you see this word community trying to modify corrections, but it can't. It is corrections. And That's it's exactly a right. fully carceral non-solution in which people suffer the full punitive effects of whatever conviction that they have been assigned. It's so clear that these consultants, despite their nice sounding names full of inclusivity and justice, are only envisioning solutions, non-solutions within the carceral system. I think that's exactly right. That's what we should expect of them. They're corrections consultants. Like their job is to help counties strategize around better 
buttressing and expanding their existing carceral infrastructure. So it, I think it's really important to be skeptical of these studies and at the same time to read them deeply and analytically because there, there's really kind of telling elements to them. Mm-hmm. Let's go back to this question of alternatives to incarceration which I think is another term that we need to bring a deep skepticism to whenever we see it. The alternative to incarceration that I've been most worried about over the past couple of years is electronic monitoring. Electronic monitoring comes in a couple different forms. The most common one is the ankle shackle, you know, the heavy, often tight, painful plastic and metal object that gets attached by a corrections officer to a person's ankle and that they have to charge and about which they have to communicate with a corrections official whenever they need to deviate from a very carefully set geographic space or path, you know, the space of the home, the path from home to work. These devices are understood by lots of people as something much easier than prison. Oh, you just to get to stay at home. But in fact, they have incredible costs, psychic costs. It's very stressful and difficult to manage them. Plain old financial costs are actually extremely expensive. They can only be managed by people who have lots of family or other support and who have good jobs and who have other people around them to take care of logistical issues, which you really cannot deal with when you are on an electronic monitor, like doing your laundry, getting your groceries done, picking your kids up from school, going to the pharmacy or doctor. Electronic monitoring is a non-alternative to incarceration. As James Kilgore, again, our colleague, our compañero in Illinois has pointed out, they are not an alternative to incarceration. They are a form of incarceration. And, uh, and I think that the more that people are entranced by technology, the more they're attracted, especially people who have no experience of electronic monitoring, the more they are attracted to these devices as alternatives. But they're one among many of these things that people envision as alternatives, that people imagine as alternatives that are in fact growing the criminal punishment system. I would just add one other quick thing. I think they're growing the criminal punishment system or the carceral state in two ways. One, of course, to your point about electronic monitoring or e-carceration, is just the sheer numbers of people who are entering that form of incarceration. Of course, I mean, that, you know, full stop. But what accompanies that often, I think, and this is probably different in different counties and jurisdictions, but of course, the more people that you put into different forms of incarceration, the more beds are open at the county jail. And so even as it's often sort of framed as an alternative to incarceration, really what it does is it puts increasing numbers of people into one form of incarceration, let's say electronic monitoring, although there are others, while ensuring that there are growing numbers of beds available at the county jail. So it is expanding carceral capacity. I mean, this is another way of making the point that you were making, but I think it's it, it's important to name that not only does it put more people into this other form of incarceration, it increases the number of beds. This is part of what we were so appalled by 12 years ago in Monroe County with the proposal to dramatically expand community corrections, which of course was done through invoking the importance of people getting out of jail during the day to work, maybe see their family, et cetera, and then going back to the jail to sleep. In the proposal for the Justice Campus, there was going to be this entirely new community corrections facility that would hold 100 people, of course, alongside a jail that was going to be built with double the capacity. So again, you see, I mean, like right there, there's one great example of community corrections existing, of course, as an extension 
of incarceration while also ensuring that there is increased carceral capacity in the jail itself. And of course, what the sort of point that's obvious to me, but maybe doesn't get said enough, and is in fact the argument we made back then, is if it is quote unquote safe enough for someone to be home, right? If a judge deems it safe enough for someone to be home with an ankle bracelet on, or it's safe enough for someone to be out in the community all day, why do they need to then go back to jail at night just to sleep in the case of community corrections? Why do they need to have be you know confined to their home or confined to this very strict you know number of places with an ankle shackle on? This has been KiteLine. After a brief hiatus, we're happy to report that our prisoner call-in phone line is back. Folks on the inside or their outside friends and supporters can call 765-343-6236 to record a message to be played on the air. Please share this number widely and we'll try to answer and air all messages possible. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.